everybody, how's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Tighten Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I just mentioned, my name's Hub, and I hope you're having a fine whenever the heck it is you end up listening to this. Me? Oh, I'm doing okay. I've been thinking lately about some of my favorite superhero theme songs, so that's been fun. I mean, obviously, the gold standard for theme songs is the one from the 1960s Hulk cartoon. You know, Doc Banner belted by gamma rays turns into the Hulk, ain't he unglamorate? Wrecking the town with the power of a bull, ain't no monster clown could be so lovable as ever-loving Hulk, Hulk, Hulk. A song which earns its greatness, at least in part, by rhyming gamma rays with unglamorate. A word which was made up for the song, which neither rhymes with gamma rays, nor is particularly descriptive of the Hulk. I mean, that's if we assume that unglamorate means not glamorous. I suppose the Hulk isn't particularly glamorous, but I wouldn't say he's a character who is defined by his lack of glamour. So obviously those are the greatest lyrics to a superhero theme song. But I would say coming in a close second are the lyrics to the Spider-Man song. I think what I like so much about that song is that it seems like it was written by Spider-Man's press secretary, who wasn't fully briefed on Spider-Man, but had some talking points he definitely wanted to hit. Like, he was at a press conference and was like, okay, we're going to open this thing up for questions. Yes, you. Is he strong? Listen, bud, he's got radioactive blood. Uh, all right, next question. All right, up front, you, yes. Does Spider-Man have a plan to fight inflation? Well, he's got a plan to have radioactive blood, I'll tell you that much. Like, before he went out there, Spider-Man's campaign advisor took him aside and was like, Look, we don't know why radioactive blood is such a hot-button issue for swing state voters, but every time he says it, his poll numbers go up a couple percentage points. And I guess my third favorite superhero theme song is probably Aquaman's, which is, of course, Mephiscopheles' cover of the Bumblebee Tuna song. Anyway. Speaking of transitions, without any further ado, let's, uh, do this. Today's synopsis rhyme is submitted by Neil Butler. My name is Hub, and every week, in order to minutia seek, I read a Bronze Age comic book, or sometimes one about a duck. I take the comics from their boxes and summarize them in a synopsis. Thanks, Neil. At first I was like, Book and duck don't really rhyme. But then I remembered that Neil is from Ireland, so for him, possibly they do, which is rad. But if you do need an alternate rhyme for duck, might I suggest Unglamorate. New Teen Titans, Volume 2, Number 33, July 1987. And the city came tumbling down. Written by Paul Levitz and theoretically Marv Wolfman, drawn by Eric Larson, inked by Romeo Tangal, lettered by Albert de Guzman, colored by Adrienne Roy, and edited by Mike Gold and even more theoretically Marv Wolfman. Teen Titan Roll Call 
Nightwing, Wonder Girl, Cyborg, Starfire, Raven, Jericho, and Beast Boy. Previously in the New Teen Titans. After spending over a year's worth of storyline battling the surprisingly spry supposed septicentenarian but secretly seventh-generation single-centenarian cult leader Brother Blood and the acolytes of his strangely sanguinary sect the Church of Blood, the Titans finally emerged triumphant. Hooray! Beast Boy celebrated by embarking on a solo adventure pursuing his crazed magic hat addicted stepfather Steve Dayton, aka Mento, aka the Freshmaker, aka the fifth richest and therefore fifth most trustworthy man in America. The rest of the Titans celebrated both their victory over Brother Blood and the absence of Beast Boy by heading upstate and attending a murder mystery dinner party. Only it turned out to be an actual murder. Then it turned out to not be an actual murder. Rejuvenated by this beast boyless team building exercise, our well rested heroes returned home. But little did the Titans realize that as they traveled somewhere in New York, a shadowy cabal was holding a meeting where they resolved that unless the Baltic, occasionally island nation of Zandia was liberated, they would blow up New York City. Gadzooks! Does the fact that the title of the story contains the phrase came tumbling down mean that this issue will focus on Jericho? Will the stakes of this issue be higher than a parlor game with an inconsistent death toll? And just who is this clandestine organization which threatens the very existence of the Big Apple? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so you'd think, but nah. Kinda? and a quartet of college students who skimmed a couple of textbooks about politics and explosives. Raven, Starfire, Cyborg, and Jericho are hanging out in their T-shaped skyscraper watching a videotape Beast Boy sent them. In the video, Gar makes a barrage of rapid-fire pop culture references and basically says that he hasn't found Dayton yet, but he's going to keep looking. When the tape ends, Cyborg is like, Man, Gar sure is an annoying asshole. I'm not worried about him at all. Jericho is like, really? And Cyborg is like, yup, but also, I am worried and I want to go help him. But I'm not going to, but I should, and if anyone else tries to help him, I'll kick their butts, because I don't care. Raven's like, it seems like you're a little conflicted. Wow, she is a powerful empath. Cyborg starts to object, but before he gets the chance to emotionally vacillate any further, Raven gets a shocked look on her face and teleports away. The gang turns to look out the window and see what their Azerathian buddy found so alarming. Turns out that a significant portion of the Manhattan Bridge just exploded. Yeah, that'd do it. The Titans leap into action. Starfire grabs Cyborg by one arm and Jericho by the other and starts flying towards the burning bridge. On their way there, Jericho notices that a car has fallen into the river and asks Starfire to drop him down so that he can save the driver. The spicy space princess complies. Jericho dives towards the submerged car and sees that the driver, who has a distinct punk rocker aesthetic, appears to be paralyzed with fright. Joe uses his creepy-ass powers to hop into the panicky punk's body and swim him to safety. Hooray! Or not so hooray, because the punk is wearing what looks like a swastika necklace. Shitty. I mean, I'm not saying Joey should have let the guy drown, but then again, maybe I am saying that. 
Meanwhile, on the bridge, Starfire and Cyborg use their respective powers to keep the bridge from collapsing and keep any more cars from falling off of it, while Raven uses her magic nonsense abilities to calm down the citizens and keep them from freaking out. The avian avatar assuming Azerathian points out that since her recent encounters with the Church of Blood, her empathic abilities are way stronger than they used to be. Good to know. The next day, Raven and Starfire put on their most 1987 outfits and go apartment hunting to try to find Raven a place to live. Raven's a little nervous about the prospect of living in the same building as a bunch of strangers. She's like, Hey, Coriander! I know that ever since I killed my demonic bad dad who was living in my bird-shaped soul tummy and mystically lobotomized brother blood and swiped his powers, I've been significantly less goth, but I want you to know that even though I traded my black bird-shaped druid robe for a white bird-shaped sundress, I'm still pretty goth. Starfire is like, Noted. While the pair of super princesses face the daunting challenge of finding a New York City apartment for a young unemployed woman with no job history, the terrorists responsible for last night's bridge explosion have a picnic in Central Park. The terrorists in question are an ethnically and sartorially diverse foursome of Zandian college students. Let's meet them. Carl is a dark-skinned explosives expert who has skinny sunglasses and dresses in new wave attire. Mark is the group's muscle, a pasty blonde jock with a buzz-cut mullet. Franz is in charge of the group's communication. He has an implausible red pompadour and an aristocratic rockabilly motif. Biara seems to be the gang's leader. She has kind of grayish skin and a severe asymmetric bob haircut. Franz is upset because before the bombing, I guess he sent out tapes to the media about the group's manifesto, but everybody ignored them. He's pretty down on himself. He's like, I'm such a dummy. I suck as much as brother blood. When he says this, Biara slaps the shit out of him. And it's like, shut the fuck up. Nobody sucks as bad as brother blood. We hate that guy. Now let's go blow up some more shit until America steps in and liberates Zandia for us. Meanwhile, Cyborg is at Star Labs getting some work done on his nonsensium robot parts and flirting with his physical therapist, Dr. Sarah Charles. Both the repairs and the flirting seem to go pretty well. That night, the Zandian terrorists are hard at work. They alerted the media about their intention to blow up Shea Stadium, but city officials think they're just goofing around and don't take the threats very seriously. The thing is, the Zandians aren't just goofing around. Carl hijacks a subway train, loads it with explosives, and is getting ready to drive it into the baseball stadium. That's when a couple of cops show up. I gotta say, even discounting the possibility of a bombing, two patrolmen seems like a pretty underwhelming response to a stolen train. Well, maybe these are highly trained super cops who have specialized expertise in dealing with matters like... Nope, the train just blew up. Oops. Fortunately for the two officers, Starfire is on the scene. She swoops down to rescue the cops before they get caught in the explosion. A little way down the tracks, Nightwing leaps onto the front of the speeding train. Wait, didn't the train just blow up? Um, so I guess maybe Carl stole two trains? Or the train only got a little bit exploded? It's kind of unclear. Regardless, Nightwing leaps onto the front of the apparently not-so-blown-up-after-all train. Then he falls off. Oops. 
Fortunately for Dick, Wonder Girl is on the scene. She swoops down to rescue him before he can get run over. While Dick nurses his wounded pride, Cyborg stops the train with his sonic arm cannon thingy. Donna fishes a battered Carl out of the wreckage with her magic lasso, and the Titans begin questioning the distinctly dressed Demolitions dilettante as to his associates' further plans. When they're finished interrogating Carl, Nightwing heads over to Jericho's apartment to pick up the mutton-chopped Marvel. When Dick arrives, Joe is sitting in his room, listening to traffic, and wishing he could make music as good as the random city noises he hears through his window. Sorry, Joey, but I'm not sure the world is ready for a Ren Faire costumed noise band. Before he can try to work out how to play a cover of Lou Reed's metal machine music on a hammered dulcimer, Dick insists that his puffy-sleeved pal get dressed so that he can join the rest of the Titans as they follow up on a lead. When Nightwing and Jericho get back to the tower, the gang all hops in their jet and heads over to Hudson Valley, where apparently Carl told them his buddies were planning their next attack. After circling the area for a few minutes, our heroes soon spot Biara, Mark, and Franz, sitting on top of a dam. Seems like they already started to explode the dam a little bit, because there's a hole in part of the dam that water is rushing through. But they're about to climb off the wall so that they can blow the dam all the way up when the Titans arrive. I guess I need to stop thinking of exploded and not exploded as a binary. When the Titans land, Franz freaks out and detonates the rest of the explosives, destroying the dam and sending heroes and terrorists alike tumbling into the newly unleashed torrent of water. Raven and Cyborg are apparently the least buoyant members of the team and fare the worst. Luckily, Vic is able to fire a laser into the air as he sinks, so that Starfire can easily locate and retrieve a soggy cyborg. Dick and Joe are able to drag Raven out of the water, but the Azerathian Enchantress is a little worse for wear, having swallowed a great deal of water. As Jericho tends to the ailing empath, Wonder Girl goes after the terrorists, and Vic and Coriander use their powers to patch up the double-exploded dam. After a few tense moments, the duo of do-gooders manage to temporarily stop the flow of water and establish a makeshift barrier that should hold the flooding at bay until some structural engineers can arrive. Hooray! As soon as Raven recovers enough to heal herself, she teleports downriver to where Wonder Girl has tied up a waterlogged Franz and Mark. Donna tries questioning them as to the whereabouts of the final member of their group, but the two terrorists are tight-lipped about Biara's plans. At least they are until Raven uses her newly boosted emotion-manipulating powers to zap them with the sorceress equivalent of club drugs. Once Mark and Franz are all mystically zooted up, Raven is like, you know what would be like totally chill? If you guys told me where Biara was headed. I mean, when you think about it, all of our consciousnesses are cosmically connected, so we're all totally on the same side already, man. Franz is like, whoa, groovy. Yeah, she's headed to the Indian Point nuclear power plant so that she can blow it up. Maybe you should tell her not to do that or something, huh? The gang hurries off to intercept Biara before she can complete her deadly mission. They arrive at the power plant just as the frenzied Zandian extremist has crashed her Volkswagen through the facility's outer gate. A tearful Biara sits in her car, her finger about to depress the button on a detonator that will blow up her car and everything near it, triggering a nuclear event that will devastate the entire eastern seaboard. Jericho turns to Wonder Girl and gives her a look that is like, So you want me to yoink into her body and make her not kill everybody? But Donna's like, nah, I mean, 
You could do that super easily. Or Raven could use her powers to chill Biara out and make her take her finger off the button. But you know what I think would be the best tool to use in this situation? Dick Grayson's people skills. Well, it was a nice eastern seaboard while it lasted. Dick approaches the car and is like, Hey Biara, knock it off, will ya? I get that Zandy's all fucked up right now, but blowing up a significant amount of the United States is just going to piss people off. Now how about you put down the bomb and get out of your vehicle and we'll send you and your buddies back to Zandia and pretend this whole thing never happened. Deal? Biara's like, yeah, okay. The end. Wait, really? Yeah, really. Turns out the best way to deal with terrorists is to politely ask them to knock it off and then let them go. Huh. Good to know. And joining us once again via the magic of telephonic communication is my good-for-many-things brother, Corey. Corey, how's it going? Hey, it's going pretty good. It's a beautiful day. I've had plenty of eggnog. Mmm. Things are all right. How are you? I'm doing okay, too. Yeah, I am in the throes of my second or third attempt, I forget which, to try to get drunk on the eggnog Lisa made. How's it going? It's a difficult proposition. I think I might have a slight buzz now, but it's it's hard to tell. And I did a little bit of eggnog math as to why that is so difficult for me. And oofa doofa. Is that the technical term? <laughs> my math isn't very good. Yeah, mine either. So here's why I think I'm having difficulty, but also why I want to keep trying. I want to keep trying because it tastes real good. And also, I like being a little bit swervy. The problem I'm finding is I figure it takes at least two shots of hard alcohol to get a little bit of a buzz. Do you find that to be generally the case? Yeah, if I'm at, you know, like my normal alcohol consumption, if I've given it a month off or so, then the one shot right. will do it. But yeah, two is, two is a good baseline. So the recipe of the eggnog is such that in order to consume two shots of the mixture of whiskey and cognac that are in there, mm -hmm. you have to drink a little bit under a pint of heavy cream, a quarter <laughs> cup of sugar, and three eggs. Oh. So in order to get, like, actually drunk, I'm pretty sure I would die. Oh. Yeah, my tummy hurts just thinking about it. But what a way to go. It's pretty good. <laughs> yeah. He died the way he lived. With the kidneys of a 97-year-old dairy farmer. Mm, that's quite an epitaph. Well, you want to talk about a comic book? Sure, let's do it. Corey, what did you think of this comic book? Um, it was fine. Yeah, that's kind of where I'm landing on it. Like, there wasn't any major structural problems with the story. I like inept terrorism as uh, as bad guys yeah the tone for the issue was a little bit all over the place and i don't know like it seems like it should be higher stakes than the last issue but it didn't feel like it was and once again the problem that i had with it i think is if you're gonna have a smaller self-contained story then you need to pay more attention to the details and that wasn't there again and it was a less tight focus 
in the issue. So I feel like that problem was exacerbated. And it was the second one of these in a row. So when it got to the end and it said, next issue, Marv Wolfman will be back, I had a couple of thoughts. The first one was, seems like you should have acknowledged the fact that he was gone um, if you're going to celebrate him coming back. He's had a writer credit on the last, I think, six issues that it's now pretty clear he had little to nothing to do with. And the second thought was, I'm glad to see him coming back. I've certainly had some problems with his writing in recent issues, but it'll be nice to get the Titans maybe out of stasis and let the story actually go someplace. Yeah, I could see that. I don't know. I I think I'm maybe a little less critical of this because to me it felt like so the, the last one was you know dick's first outing back with the team so they're like easing him in with a maybe murder mystery where the stakes weren't very high mm-hmm. and then this one is like ratcheting up a bit more like people are gonna blow a bunch of shit up so it's more important yeah that you um take the law into your own hands and decide to pardon a terrorist and send them home <laughs> because they agreed not to blow up the nuclear plant you know that sort of thing yeah, I mean, the storyline of having a well-intentioned but somewhat misguided terrorist cell really struck me as something that, you know, you probably wouldn't see these days. No, no, definitely not. I mean, they're supposed to be sympathetic characters. I wasn't sure who these people were, really. It seemed like they're a bunch of maybe Zandian American college students who are trying to figure out their cultural identity and decided to turn to terrorism. I don't know if they're supposed to be from Zandia. We had established earlier, or Marv Wolfman had established earlier, that the cultural identity of Zandia is explicitly that they are all criminals, like the civilian population. So to then have the citizens be portrayed as sympathetic and trying to get out from under the yoke of the oppression of Brother Blood. I'm not saying you shouldn't walk back the idea that the whole country is filled with criminals, because I think you should. I think that's a bad precedent to set. But you at least need to walk it back or acknowledge that you had set that up in the past. Yeah, or if it's an island or not. Right. Like, there's Sandy has got problems, man. As a story device. Yeah, it really is a Schrodinger's independent nation. (laughs) It's both an island and not an island, and populated entirely by criminals, and not populated entirely by criminals. The outcome determined by the reader? I guess? I mean, it more seems that the outcome is determined by the writer. Mm. I just think of the Schrodinger's thing, right? observing this is is gonna lend some validity to it's an island it's criminals it's what it's not i don't know right i guess in this that it would be the writer who is observing the fictional nation and then the reader is filtered through the writer's observance Mm. i'm losing the thread of this thing it's getting way too complicated yes give uh, robert anton wilson a call (laughs) of him straighten this on out Yes, clearly, Robert Anton Wilson's interpretation of events will make everything much less complicated. (laughs) It really did strike me that the Zandian terrorist organization was meant as maybe a send-up of, like, 
the Weathermen or the SDC or like the Symbionese Liberation Front, but like coming 10 to 20 years after the fact. And so now reading it, it's like 50 years after. And it's a little bit hard to connect to what they were maybe going for. Mm -hmm. But they were a bunch of dummies. And they also looked really weird, one and all. We had a new artist on this issue. It's Eric Larson. Are you familiar with his work at all? I am not. So he got super popular in the 90s. He was one of the founders of Image Comics. Mm. His title that came out of that was The Savage Dragon, which is still being published. And I like his work okay, but I like his work in this issue a lot more. At the time, he was pretty new in his art career with major publishers. He had done some independently published work before, but he had done a couple of titles for DC. Probably most notably was his work on Doom Patrol which he took over from a artist named Steve Lytle, and his work was not very well received there. And you can kind of, I think, see why a little bit in this issue. It is a very distinctive style at this point, where the protagonists of the book are drawn in much more detail and with more realism, like more akin to like a Perez-type style. And then all of the background characters and secondary characters are drawn super cartoonishly, almost like a reverse of what you would see in, like, Tintin. Mm -hmm. And I thought it was really interesting. He has said in interviews that after the reception of his work on Doom Patrol, when he was taking over a new title after a different artist, he tried to more acclimatize to the previous artist's style to make a transition into what he considers his style. And I think that's partly why he was so popular in the 90s, and also partly why I think, unfortunately, I kind of dismissed him as an artist at the time. He got very popular taking over the Spider-Man book from Todd McFarlane. Well, first taking over the Amazing Spider-Man from Todd McFarlane, and then taking over the Spider-Man adjective-less book from Todd McFarlane. And... I had kind of dismissed him as a Todd McFarlane knockoff, and I think that's part of why he got so popular and was one of the founders of Image Comics. So it, it's interesting to see his earlier style and how different and how really distinctive it was. I'm not sure I would have recognized it as being his art if it were not for the way he draws the Zandian's haircuts, which is super oh. distinctive. Oh, yeah, I did notice the male characters had a thing going on with their hair. Yeah, like anti-gravity pompadours. Yep, except the Brian Bosworth stand-in. <laughs> That's a serious flat top. It really is. But I actually really liked the art in this, and I liked the mix of like a more cartoonish style. And the backgrounds particularly, I felt like, weren't necessarily trying to show, I don't know, like the physical location of the characters, but more the gist of what they're dealing with, which, which I thought was interesting. And you see it in a couple of instances in this. Did you get that impression at all? Um, yes and no. Like, some of them are pretty detailed. Like, when Borgie's getting his legs worked on at Star Labs, that almost reminded me of Perez, like all the machinery and stuff in the background. There's a lot of detail in the machinery, but that was actually one of the instances I was thinking of, where there is almost like an homage to Kirby style in terms of the technology but then the way it is portrayed it doesn't make sense but i don't feel like it needs to make sense 
There's gears and widgets and just generalized technology that are dominating the background and almost growing organically and taking over the scene in a way that I think sets a tone, but doesn't necessarily make literal sense. You know what I mean? What makes less sense to me is Dr. Charles' <laughs> outfit. Yeah, her outfit as a doctor and physical therapist is an aerobics instructor outfit, it would seem, of the type that got my grandfather to start aerobicizing in the 80s. <laughs> uh, yep. You also will notice that she kind of mugs to the camera at one point, making an expression like, ha, my cyborg, I think I'll keep him. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's pretty cute. It is. Yeah, overall, like I said, I really did like the artwork in this. But from the first page, you are informed that, oh, we're going to be seeing something kind of different in this. From just how grotesquely mugging Beast Boy is when he first appears. That is downright unnerving. It really is. And he mentions that he's doing his Max Headroom impression. And you're like, oh, yeah, that I can see that. Mm-hmm. Need some shitty sunglasses, but... Man, I love that room. They're like lounge room. Oh, it looks like it's got a white shag carpet with like a four-inch pile. Mm -hmm. And then this giant flat panel TV set into this all this technology and widgets. Yeah, that's another thing, though. Like, the technology and widgets, like, I think it's meant to convey that there is technology happening. But there's like Kirby Crackle going off around some of the machinery. Which would be really unsettling, I think, if you're just trying to watch TV. But in later panels, like when Raven is looking out the window and seeing that something's happening with the Brooklyn Bridge, there's just Kirby Crackle happening around the moon for no real reason. Mm -hmm. And there, there was a fair amount of stuff like that, which was a little bit jarring, but especially in the context of I know this is a one-off issue, I kind of enjoyed. Yeah, speaking of Raven, that was one of the most jarring things about the difference in the artwork for me is her face is drawn kind of younger looking and more filled out than we're used to seeing mm -hmm. and i think part of that is that she's drawn and written as i don't know taking in the world around her with a kind of naivete that would seem previously uncharacteristic to her but does kind of highlight some of the changes that she's been through mm-hmm at one point, though, she talks about using the gift Brother Blood gave her, mm -hmm. and it sets it up that previous to her interaction with Brother Blood, she could only absorb pain and heal wounds and not change people's emotions. And I was like, wait, no, because when we first were introduced to her, the very first thing that she did was make Wally fall in love with her and use her emotion manipulating power. She's always had emotion manipulating power. Is that something that changed during Crisis on Infinite Earths? Or is that something that Paul Levitz wasn't aware of because it wasn't something that Wolfman used a lot? Gosh, I'm guessing the latter because I had actually forgotten about the Wally thing too. And I was like, wait, Brother Blood taught her that? That seems weird. But I had forgotten. Yeah, good point. I'm pretty sure the only gift she got from Brother Blood is that sundress that she's wearing right now. Oh my god, she looks like god, what's she got? Princess Peach the from Mario. <laughs> I can see that. Just needs needs a blonde wig and a little crown. That's your answer to everything, Corey. <laughs> blonde wig and a little crown? Yep. I mean you can solve a lot of problems that way, but not all of them. Fair. That's fair. 
When Beast Boy first shows up on the big screen TV and leaves his video message to the gang that he's going off on his own to fight Steve Dayton and nobody better help him, he ends his message by saying, and remember to support your local animal shelters. You never know when I might need to go into one. That felt like it was a reference to the Bob Barker spay and neuter your pets thing. Did it read that way to you? Gosh, I don't remember that. Oh, that was the way Bob Barker ended every episode of The Price is Right. He would appeal directly to the camera and say, and don't forget to get your pets spayed or neutered. Oh, shit. That was the show. He's the dude with the, the super skinny microphone? Yeah. I don't remember that. Really? Yeah. Yeah, it was one of his signature things. Um, It felt like that was what Beast Boy was referencing, and I wish he would have just kept it that way. <laughs> and then, you know... Maybe he would end up staying in an animal shelter and would get spayed or neutered because I think that would improve the comic book. <laughs> no future Beast Boys? Yeah, he's just too aggressive right now. Hmm. <laughs> well, you just gotta whack him on the nose with a rolled up newspaper. Maybe that's an alternate solution. I like after that. I know it's supposed to be just like playing with technology, but it looks like Cyborg is just lasering <laughs> the TV because he's so annoyed with Beast Boy. I can see him just turning things off that way. I mean, it's got to be tempting to treat your possessions that way when you do have a laser in your finger and the seemingly unlimited resources of Wayne Enterprises behind you. Mm -hmm. But his reaction to Beast Boy, did it make sense to you? I was trying to figure out what everybody on the team was making of it. I mean, it sounded like they said, okay, what he's doing is super stupid and dangerous but there's no way we can possibly help him because he doesn't want us to. And I was like, that doesn't, that's not the way this relationship has ever worked that you guys have had with him. And especially Cyborg being like, oh, it pisses me off so much that he's going off on his own. But if any of you guys try to fear interfere with him going off on his own and getting himself killed, I'll kick your butts. Like, what? what is happening there? Yeah, it doesn't make sense. And, and Raven kind of gives him that out, too, where she says, oh, you know, he'll call us if he needs it. But yeah, it's his thing. So let's just let him do his thing. You think they just want him to get killed? I mean, maybe that's one of the things that bugged me about this issue. Not that they're OK with Beast Boy getting himself killed, but like their relationships to one another and specifically to one another being imperiled in some way seems really weird. Like. When Raven almost drowns, Cyborg's reaction to it is, huh, you'd think she would have just melted in water because she's a witch, right? It's like, dude, what is it with Paul Levitz and people joking about drowning victims? Yeah, that's a good point. It's like two issues in a row we've had that be a thing where people's reaction to their friends drowning is to tease them about it before they're out of the woods yet. I know, I'm, I don't usually come down on Dick's uh, side of things, but he has to kind of shut Cyborg down and be like, dude, no, it's not cool. Yeah, Dick had a weird book, too. Like, first of all, him showing up in Jericho's apartment to, I guess, get him ready for his adventure. But, like, the fact that they showed Jericho stripping down and changing into his superhero duds in front of Dick was just kind of weird. Especially since they're making chit-chat while he's changing. But Jericho is mute, and so they're communicating with sign language. 
that's got to be really frustrating for him that he has to keep answering questions while he's trying to get dressed. It was just a weird, awkward interaction, I felt like. I love that in the one panel where Jericho's just in nothing but his tidy whities he's going, I'm worried. <laughs> okay, I don't actually speak ASL, other than for some reason I know the words for goat and ketchup. Uh, I really don't know why those are the two that I've remembered. But it looks to me in that panel, it says that what he is saying is worried, but it looks to me like Dick is saying, I'm going to eat a telephone. And Jericho is saying, I live in a house. It does. He's making a, a worry sign. I think it's pretty close. Okay. And ASL, if, if memory serves. That's good. I'm glad they did that level of research. Yeah, and I think that Dick was making a, a J, maybe, in that scene. Either that or he was doing the thing where you, like, you blow into your thumb and one of your fingers goes out to amuse a child or to flip somebody off. Yeah, I've only seen that used to flip someone off. And it would be weird if he's just doing that with his pinky. It looked to me like he was either miming eating a telephone or doing the, like, hang loose, bro, thing. Yeah, that's probably it. He probably just popped in the window. It's like, hey, what's up, man? <laughs> Did the hang loose sign. But then after that, when Dick tries to stop the train, the whole thing that was happening with the train, I couldn't really figure out. Like... There are cops running down the train tracks and trying to stop the train because the train is filled with explosives, right? I figured the cops had seen the would-be terrorists and found him suspicious, and that's why they were chasing the train. Okay, but then the train explodes behind them, and they have to get rescued by Starfire. And then after the train explodes, then the train is barreling down the tracks. Yeah. And then Dick jumps onto the front of the train, sees the terrorist who I believe is named Carl, who has commandeered the subway train. And then he go as soon as he lands on it, he goes flying off the train and has to get rescued by Wonder Girl. Did you understand that sequence at all? Understanding would be would be generous, but the way that I justified it was the first train there was bombs in more than one of the carriages. Okay. And so the cops are chasing the guy, and for whatever reason, it blows up, and she rescues the cops. So that was the, the first carriage. And then the second one is the one that's moving. And then Dick jumps on that, and he's like, oh, I'll stop this train. And he does what he thinks is going to be the trick where like you like vault into an open window, like parkour style. Mm -hmm. But he sees it's glass and like tries to stop himself in midair and falls off like a dummy. So he didn't realize the that the train wasn't a convertible? <laughs> like, like, I thought the front windshield of the train would be open. I thought the train was slamming on its brakes to get him to go flying off. But then also I was like, wait, that's not how train brakes work. Oh, that's probably what happened because he swings down into the glass and it looks like the conductor's right there. And the conductor's like, what the fuck? And slams on the brakes and then Dick goes flying. That's what happened. I guess. But all of the action sequences had elements like that where, like, I had to spend way too much time trying to figure out what was going on. And even after I had spent that time, I wasn't quite able to do it. Mm -hmm. And the other big moment that Dick has is at the end when he gives the talking to to the woman who had been, I believe, the most vehement of the terrorists, Biara. And it's like, hey, you don't really want to blow stuff up, do you? And she's like, not really. 
And the comic book makes the point, you know, Jericho could just take over her brain and make her not blow up the nuclear power plant. Or Raven could use her powers to make her not blow up the nuclear power plant. But you know what? Dick needs a win here. So we're going to let him talk her down. Mm -hmm. They are playing so fast and loose with potentially millions of lives there. Yeah, I had that thought, too. That's why I guess the editorial, you know, box says if if Nightwing fails, they stand ready, you know. But if he if he succeeds, then it's like a win for him. Like he needs that win. But I, I agree. I, was, I think that was pretty irresponsible, you guys. Yeah, like there's other situations. Maybe go bowling with him later and let him win. Mm hmm. Jericho is so frustrated by that Wonder Girl tells him, no, he grows a beard in my coffee. Oh, he totally did. He's like, I've been waiting forever here. I think mm -hmm. he probably, he strikes me as enough of a theater kid that he probably keeps a fake beard with him at all times so that he can be like, been waiting a while now, and he just pops it on. I bet you're right. I kind of like that idea. I might have to start doing that. It's gonna it's making me rethink my president of the drama club. <laughs> I also thought it was really weird to have the last panel of it. They're happily walking, not into the sunset, but with the sunset as the backdrop. But the other thing in the backdrop is the nuclear power plant and like these pink clouds billowing from it. I'm like, that is a really weird image. It is weird. Yeah, I had the same thought. Like it's a post-apocalyptic like PSA poster but they're so happy in it mm -hmm. except for Cyborg who I mean Cyborg also looks very happy it's weird that he is standing like a couple of feet away from the rest of the team though and looks like he's supposed to be locking arms with somebody but there's nobody there I wonder if that is a last minute redraw if they had forgotten that Beast Boy wasn't with them on the adventure because the spacing of them really does look weird, and it does look like he's supposed to be locking arms with someone. Oh, man, I bet you're right. Yeah, there's a Beast boy size gap in that artwork. Mm-hmm. <sighs> Gar. Can't even show up for the panel you're supposed to be in. <laughs> he's busy. One comment that struck me as a, a little odd. So when the, the would-be terrorists call Shea Stadium to say they're going to blow it up, like the person that gets the call laughs them off as um, just probably Red Sox fans. <laughs> I actually really enjoyed that. I think this is the one instance in history where the Red Sox did have any actual animosity towards the Mets because this would have been right after the World Series in which the ball went through Bill Buckner's legs, and the Mets won the World Series over the Red Sox. That's what they were talking about. It's actually a fairly specific timestamp. I feel like even at that point, Red Sox fans would have been much, much more likely to blow up Yankee Stadium than Shea Stadium. But I did kind of appreciate the specificity of the reference. Yeah, I, I didn't realize that. That was what happened in that World Series. But yeah, they were definitely referencing them getting some sort of revenge. So that explains it. Yeah. I mean, frankly, Oil Can Boyd should have been pitching in that game anyway, and then they wouldn't have lost it. That's a pretty, that's a good name. And Oil Can Boyd was my favorite player on the Red Sox. He was my favorite pitcher, and he was also just a fucking mess. But I, I really loved him. He would like throw the ball 
with like all of his might to the point that oftentimes his hat would fall off his head while he was pitching. Mm-hmm. And it was just really exciting to watch. That did get him into some trouble later on when he was keeping some crack cocaine in the brim of his hat and <laughs> it fell off and he had to go around and stamp it into the dirt of the pitcher's mound. Uh, that was when he was pitching against the Oakland A's in a game. Oh my gosh. Yeah, the 80s were a wild time. Specifically, they were a wild time for Oil Can Boyd. Yeah, sounds like. All right. Learn something new every episode. Yeah. The game that they lost, that is the first baseball game that I remember watching. I think it was like nine or ten years old at the time. Man, that is amazing because I've seen a fair amount of baseball games and I don't remember a single thing about (laughs) any of them. (laughs) Sport is so boring to me. I'm sorry to say. That's totally fair. Honestly, the boringness of it is one of the things that appeals to me. For me, as long as it is a slow-paced, low-scoring game, I can get invested in the drama of every interaction. If it is a fast-paced, low-scoring game like soccer or hockey, I can get into it if I'm watching it live. But on television, I just get exhausted from trying to keep up with the pace. My favorite still, though, is a fast-paced, high-scoring game, uh, specifically basketball. Yeah, I was just going to say basketball is like way more fun to watch than all those things. Yeah, I would say it's my favorite sport. I love the way they dribble up and down the court. Ah, the squeaking of the sneakers. Echo in the hall. What's that from? I, is, is that basketball? That's not the Kurt's oh, no, love song. <laughs> no, no, that's the Spearhead one where he's talking about uh, Dream Team. Oh, you, you can't go from Curtis Blow to Michael Frenti. Just happened, though. Uh, Tough but fair. Well, I'm going to need a while to sort this all out. Uh, You ready to get into the minutia? Let's. Rick, would you mind singing us in? We got minutia. It's not the biggest part. It's just minutia. Like Corey eating farts, we got minutia. Time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. So, Corey, what do you feel like hitting up first? Hmm. You mentioned a timestamp earlier. Let's uh, start there. Sounds good. The issue had a bunch of them. Two of them we've already brought up, the Max Headroom. Actually, three of them we've already brought up. The Max Headroom, the very specific brief window of time when the Red Sox fans had any animosity towards the Mets. And the Bob Barker, get your pets spayed and neutered. What other ones were you able to uh, dig up there? I only had the Max Headroom one. Fair enough. It was a good one. Do you remember watching the Max Headroom TV show? Um, I remember thinking it was like the coolest thing ever, but I don't really remember any of the content. I am in the exact same boat. I remember thinking it was really cool, and I do not remember any other details about it. I remember that he had Coke commercials, but I don't remember what they were. I know that he was like the spokesperson for New Coke. The thing that I remember most about Max Headroom was the Doonesbury parody Ron Headrest, which I didn't get most (laughs) of the references of, but I thought was absolutely hilarious. It was Ronald Reagan campaigning to appeal to younger voters as a Max Headroom type character. Mm. Yeah, I remember as a a kid wanting to, like, understand Doonesbury (laughs) and trying to read it and find the jokes in it, but... I don't know. Bloom County was just so much more accessible. Yeah, although honestly, like the jokes in that were oftentimes equally 
like rooted in political lore and like it's like rereading it i'm like why did i think that that savage takedown of bruce babbitt was so funny <laughs> mm. is that it for timestamps for you uh, just that and the outfits. I mean, and we will get into that. Oh, but we definitely will. 80s. Oof. They certainly were a thing. The other timestamp that Beast Boy has, just right out the gate, we get a rush of them, is he talks about giving Cyborg Vanna White's phone number. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, just a barrage of pop culture references from Beast Boy right out of the gate. Well, you started to bring it up before, but let's get into it sartorially speaking. Which elements of fashion do you want to talk about? And damn, there were a lot of them. I guess we got to start with the... I don't remember punk rockers wearing Nazi paraphernalia. Was that a thing? I think it kind of was. I know that Iggy and the Stooges went through a phase where they were doing that. And I think it was a thing that like bikers did. And the dumber elements of punk rock would pick up on anything that was controversial and not care about the context enough. It was a, this pisses people off, so I will do that. I know some of the early fashion from Malcolm McLaren, the guy who put the Sex Pistols together's shop, would have swastikas incorporated in it. And, like, the Dead Boys used to wear swastikas and stuff. Oh, wow. Gosh, I don't remember that at all from my, my interest in punk as a younger guy. But um, yeah, that was that was off-putting to, to see that kind of out of context. There's this uh, punker that they, they rescue from the car crash when the bridge explodes at the beginning, and he's got like a skinny jeans and a do-it-yourself muscle shirt that's like, you know, neon green and kind of a purple mohawk and a big uh, swastika necklace. Yeah, it was a weird and very specific choice that was made, and I'm not exactly sure why. Yeah, like I said, I think there was that element in punk rock, but it certainly wasn't universal within it, and I don't think even common. And maybe I'm just being naive, but I feel like by the mid-80s, the majority of the punk rock scene was less tolerant to that shit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just going for the shock value for shock value's sake. I mean, maybe that is supposed to be what his character was, but you're right. It is very prominent, and it shows up in a couple of different panels. Like, three in a row, it is very prominent that he is definitely wearing a necklace that is a swastika. And I really wish I understood the intent behind that. Jericho's rescue of that kid, too. Like, it is a weird thing where the way he rescues him is to take over his body and be like, hey, you should swim out of here. Mm -hmm. He's like, oh, his hand's stuck. So I'll go into his body and be like, hey, move your hand, dumbass. Yeah, I I mean, I don't know. I've never been in a car that has been submerged in water. I would probably be reticent to roll the window down also. I gotcha. Yeah, there would be an element of panic that I'm sure would set in. So yeah, there was some much more benign fashion going on in this issue as well. Although equally inexplicable, uh, a more subtle moment of it, although there's no reason why we need to be focusing on subtle things. (laughs) The way that the cops are dressed, specifically one of the cops that Starfire is rescuing, made me wonder if they were real cops or if that one police officer was in fact a cop-themed stripper. And that is because if you look at him on page 12, 
It looks like he is wearing a tie with no shirt. I was wondering what happened there. Yeah, you see the tie like on the back of his neck, but you see skin below it Uh between the bottom of the tie and his collar of his shirt. I had surmised that um, Starfire, since she kind of grabbed him by the what would be the scruff of his neck, like the back of his shirt, yanked so hard the tie came out. But oh, I I like I like your (laughs) maybe he's a stripper idea. I think maybe he is. Like I I had read it as he was wearing the jacket but no shirt under it, and then just a tie with no shirt. And that he was on his way to a bachelorette party where he would press play on a boombox and say, you have the right to remain sexy. And I mean, if that was the case, it might explain why he was so bad at being a police officer that he thought maybe he could arrest a train. I don't know which of those two cops is more ignorant. One guy, The one guy is like the way that they're drawn is saying, huh? And this potential stripper guy is saying, aye, 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 aye. I mean, they are both very stunned to find themselves suddenly airborne and being hoisted around by Starfire. Although then again, immediately following that. So after their rescue, they go to talking about how attractive they found Starfire in a way that didn't totally fit with the danger that they had just been in. but also. And this is something that I think has come up with Levitz's banter before, doesn't really make sense. One of them says, what the heck was that? And the other one says, I'm not sure, but I'll give you a hundred for her phone number. Mm -hmm. Why would he think the other one has her phone number? Like, it undercuts the danger of the situation, especially because we're not out of the woods with it yet. Mm -hmm. Because even though the train just blew up, the train still might blow up at any point. Yeah, I think it's just supposed to be read as, you know, macho banter. That's amusing, but it just reads dumb. Yeah, it reads like Beast Boy dialogue, but with Beast Boy, it makes sense that he wouldn't know what he was saying, because as we've discussed, he's a dumb kid who talks about sex a lot, but doesn't actually know what sex is. It reads even clunkier coming from those police officers. Mm -hmm. But plenty more fashion to cover still because we haven't even discussed the terrorists (laughs) so they're terrorists i think they're also maybe supposed to be college students i may be reading too much into the fact that they're hanging out in i it's probably supposed to be central park uh it just looks like they're hanging out in the quad to me especially because they do have textbooks in front of them that say history of zandia and modern explosives Mm-hmm. Yeah, typical terrorist uh, stuff. But we got uh, Mark, Carl, Franz, and Biara. Mm-hmm. Biara has a asymmetric bowl cut, and she is wearing a green blazer that is like David Byrne-esque too big for her with huge shoulder pads. Carl is wearing a big purple trench coat and weird super skinny sunglasses and has a huge pompadour and kind of buck teeth mark i think it is Mm -hmm. has a buzz cut and dresses like a prototypical jock and franz has a weird very this is the signature eric larson haircut that i'm used to seeing of curly red hair pompadour that just kind of is flying off in all directions. He's wearing a motorcycle jacket with an ascot. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a good, it's a motley crew. It really is. Yeah, man, there's just, there is so much fashion in this issue. I you really do get the impression like Eric Larson was like, well, only got one issue, so I'm going to work in as much of this as I can. Mm -hmm. 
because, yeah, on the panel before we are introduced to these Andean terrorists, we see Raven and Starfire out apartment hunting, and both of their outfits and those of every civilian they encounter are just amazing. Yeah, I, I was joking that it was the Princess Peach look earlier, and I have only vague memories of that, so I may not be accurate, but it's a very cartoony kind of pink blouse with those super poofy sleeves at the top, mm-hmm. a purple like mock turtleneck and belt, and then a fuchsia like pleated sort of long tulip skirt. Yeah, it's a very distinct look and made more distinct by the fact that it's so different than what we're used to seeing Raven wearing. And then Starfire in that is wearing a purple tank top that is tucked into some very high-waisted jeans. And I mean, given the percentage of Starfire that is leg, those are very high-waisted jeans. And some, like, knee-high, looks like galoshes-style boots. And then in the background, we see... Somebody looking at them and going, (laughs) (laughs) he's just like slapped himself in the forehead, too. He just can't believe how attractive they are. Yeah, well, when you see a pretty lady, sometimes you just need to slap yourself in the forehead and make ambulance noises. But he is dressed in what basically looks like a canary yellow zoot suit that is missing the blazer. Mm -hmm. High waisted, like wide legged yellow pants. Uh, a dress shirt and suspenders and a full-on uh, grill in my copy in that his teeth are the same color slightly more golden than his yellow drawers oh shucks wait drawers means underpants oh i mean pants oh okay i mean in england that means drawers but <laughs> i don't know what color his undies are <laughs> I would assume that they would match his teeth and pants. There's no reason why they shouldn't. Wee-oo. Well, it's time for our newest category, Corey. Battle of the Band Names. So, in last week's contest, we saw three-time champion, Polychromatic Rainbow of Descent, going up against the brash newcomer, Get the Squid Drunk. And Corey, we had an upset. What? Get the Squid Drunk narrowly squeaked out a victory with 53% of the vote. We had, I think, a little over 60 people vote in that contest. Oh my gosh. I, what I think we decided was the ska band that did mostly sea shanty covers. Mm-hmm, Get mm-hmm. the Squid Drunk narrowly defeated Polychromatic Rainbow of Descent. So this week... We have to try to find a band name from the text of this comic book that we think can go up against Get the Squid Drunk. What were you able to find? Oh, man. You know, it's odd with not only the huge amount of text that's packed into this comic, which I don't think we commented on yet, but it's very wordy. Mm -hmm. Um, That, combined with the fact that there's a fair amount of direct, like, uh, music metaphor with the scene where... uh, Nightwing comes and jumps into Joe's window. Yeah, and Jericho is thinking about how he just wishes he was talented enough to start a noise band. Which I don't actually know if people genuinely like that music, the people that say they do. I've tried really hard, and it's not easy. I have a lot of difficulty believing that. Yeah, I'm sure I'm sure people do. Probably even some of our listeners do. But uh, I always think of 
uh, we have a, a mutual friend who purports to be a fan of that type of music, and he related a story of trying to compliment a band on how much he liked their music and how off-putting they found that. Oh, yeah? He was trying to tell a noise man, it's like, oh, I really like your stuff, and they're like, oh, um, you, wh- what? No, you don't. Take it back. Yeah, I just, I, I don't know. I, not to yuck anybody's yum, it's just, that's a tough one for me. Um, so yeah, yeah. Despite Jericho being sad, he can't start a noise band. I, I did come up with three names. With uh, I think they fall into some pretty distinct genres. I don't know which one's my favorite, so I'll, I'll give them to you. We can see what you have and see what comes out in the mix. Okay, let let's take turns. You start with one, and then I'll do one, and then you do one. Because I have two, you have three. We'll see if there's any overlap too. Okay, cool. I'll save what I think is maybe the best for last. So the first one's very straightforward. It's on page 25, and it's the band name Crash with a K, Hmm. which is probably like a hair metal band. I can totally see that, yeah. Britney Fox kind of deal. What do you got? Okay, from page six, off of the side of a truck, we have Boom Pow Tacos. (laughs) I almost picked that, but I was like, that's not a band name but it could be okay i think if you put like a the in front of it the boom pow tacos i think is kind of a good name like maybe they're a more percussion driven version of the boomtown rats it was an intriguing uh truck indeed all right so we got crash with a k we got the boom pow tacos and then um from page 22 i had a german electronic music duo franz and mark Okay. Kind of like a first name version of Kruder and Dorfmeister. Okay, I can see that. More yeah. informal. Yeah. Still German, but, you know. <laughs> okay. I had, this is the one I'm curious if we're on the same page with. Sea Green Laughter. Oh, no. Okay, so from page two, Jericho is described somewhat nonsensically, but very poetically, as Jericho's eyes flash with sea green laughter. Mm. as his fingers break the silence by pointing out that Cyborg lies. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I could see Sea Green Laughter being like a indie pop psychedelic band. Maybe they open for like Olivia Tremor Control or one of the other like Elephant Six bands. Mm-hmm. So what was your final option? My final option uh, also had a water theme like like yours did. And this one... In contrast to, you know, the hair metal or the uh, electronic music is more of like, a, I don't know, I think these guys are signed on like Wyndham Hill, kind of like maybe tour with Michael Hedges, and that's the band uh, Earth Strikes Water. Oh, <laughs> wow. Earth Strikes Water is pretty good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think they got a didgeridoo, <laughs> maybe. Oh, totally. Okay, so for me, it comes down to either... Sea Green Laughter or Earth Strikes Water. Mm. Either one could give the squid a run for its its money. Ah, gosh. Now that Polychromatic Rainbow of Descent is off the table, anything can happen. Let's go with Earth Strikes Water. All right. They probably have a gong, too. See, I just keep thinking of Earth, Wind, and Fire, thinking, like, they, they must sound like that, but I don't, I don't know. Hmm. That's asking a lot. It is. It is. I'm, I'm probably setting the bar too high there. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I will put up the Twitter poll. It will be Get the Squid Drunk versus Earth Strikes Water. Nice. 
Corey, let's take this party to the Bozone. What instance of one character calling another character a bozo, either literally or metaphorically, do you want to talk about? I had two. The first one, maybe you can help me sort out. <laughs> it's clearly meant to have the structure of an insult, but it doesn't make any sense, and it's on page 17, where Cyborg refers to Dick as wingtips. Yeah. Like, he's, he's, he's a nice pair of shoes? I don't get it. Yeah, I think he was just calling him a pair of dress shoes. Hmm. Okay, that's not very good. No, it, it isn't. I think he's just, like, the kind of thing where it's just like, all right, wing. Wing is associated with your name. What other wing words are there? Mm-hmm. I don't know if it even is an insult as much as just a lazy nickname. So he does, I feel, have a much better showing on the following page, which is the use of the word buddy as a threat. So Ooh. not exactly a bozone, but I always like to see a threatening buddy. <laughs> I like it too. My, uh, my bozone moment does also come from Cyborg, who uh, I would like to point out has a fairly high mebby count in this issue. I believe mm. it was three, but they came in pretty rapid succession, and I was like, ooh, Levitz is leaning on the Mebby button pretty hard here. But the other thing that Cyborg says is that he calls Steve Dayton a dangerous loon, oh. which is both evocative and redundant, because a loon is a bird, and all birds are dangerous. As we have learned on the show. Mm-hmm. If it has a cloaca, it's gonna attack ya. So, yeah, I, I decided to go with Dangerous Loon. That's a good one. I like that. He also does have that moment that we talked about before, too, where as Raven is drowning, he says, oh, I would have thought the water would have melted the witch. It's like, dude, what the fuck? Harsh. But yeah, that was too harsh for me to include. Mm -hmm. Well, speaking of being unnecessarily harsh on the Titans... Who did you have as your Beast Boy, the worst Teen Titan? You know, not to be too cliche, but I gave it to the the green teen himself. Like, what a darn foolish thing to do and to make light of it and then to mess up your whole teen dynamics with like, hey, I'm going to go put myself in a shitload of danger. Don't you guys try and help? Yeah, but he did also do a Max Hedrum impression. It's not enough. Yeah, I, I can totally understand your choice. He was actually one of the few Titans I didn't have on my list, just because I think he just showed up in the first panel, and I kind of forgot he was there. But there were a number of ways in which the Titans fucked up in this issue. So from Cyborg, we have him being mean to Raven, which I, I found very off-putting. Mm -hmm. uh, we had Nightwing making small talk with someone who communicates through sign language, well, that person is trying to get dressed. Like, just struck me as like a dental hygienist making chit-chat while your mouth is being held open type of thing. Or it's like, if you had this happen when, like, if you have a particularly talkative friend or acquaintance and you're like, you stand up and you're like, I'll be right back. I gotta go pee. And they just don't stop talking. Yeah. That's really frustrating. It really is. But I feel like Dick was doing something fairly akin to that with Jericho. Mm-hmm. We had Wonder Girl having her, yeah, I know you guys can actually save the day, but I'm going to make significant eye contact to say like, hey, 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 back off Jericho and Raven. Dick needs a win here when you are endangering pretty much the entire eastern seaboard. Mm. 
And then we had Jericho, who I think I am going to give this to. He did an okay job in the issue for the most part, but it really bothered me that he tried to save Raven from drowning by applying a damp washcloth to her. <laughs> like, that is his treatment of Raven drowning. And also it is implied in that panel that he does not know what blood looks like. Oh my gosh. Because, so, Raven is coming out of the water. She is still very damp. He is putting a damp washcloth on her forehead. He learned first aid nursing his mother back to health after her adventures. He hated the sight of blood then, and he still does. Does he hate it so much that he doesn't know what it looks like? Because there's no blood going on there. Nor would there be. I wonder if it's the art. Mis well, no, why would her forehead be bloody from almost drowning? Yeah, that doesn't make sense. I mean, I guess theoretically she could have been hit on the head with a rock. So maybe that's supposed to be blood instead of water on her head, but it sure doesn't look like it. It's made pretty clear that she nearly drowned and that he's just like, oh, there, there, I'll, I'll put a damp washcloth on your forehead and talk about how I hate the sight of blood. It's just like, what a weird miscue there. Sorry, Jericho. That earns you the Beast Boy. Mm. Also, he saved a Nazi. Bad move. Yeah. Boo. Conversely, who did you have as your Aqualad this issue? Well, despite the potential problems aka death of millions with her trying to help dick get his groove on or back i had wonder girl she did a lot she rescued dick from the folly with his train falling off she had a reasonable approach and everybody else is like yeah let's kick this guy's ass she's like we should try and find out what else they plan to blow up when she ca captures the purple trench coat guy mm -hmm. she does not destroy any trains which I feel like there was needless destruction of two very expensive trains, which New York needs. Yeah, the commute is going to be fucking hell the next day. Mm -hmm. Yep. So she got big points for not destroying any trains. Uh, she also flies the jet. And then she also captures the remaining terrorists after they blow up the, the dam. So for me, that, that got her the win. I think that's a pretty good call. I did have the point against her of potentially endangering a huge amount of people. So I did not go with Wonder Girl, but I, I can certainly see your point there. I decided to go with Raven, just for her lack of fucking up, I feel like, for the most part. She got knocked unconscious, but she was nice to everybody. <laughs> and she also used her maybe new, maybe power that she had had all along, or whatever, to uh, help calm down a bunch of crowds. And as soon as she woke up, she thrust herself back into action. And that's the other thing that Wonder Girl did was like, Raven had just nearly drowned and then she showed up where Wonder Girl is and she's like, huh, took you long enough. I'm like, come on! Donna Troy, School of Grief Counseling and Recovery? <laughs> Tough but fair. But yeah, I decided to go with Raven. I think she really... Pulled through, and I like the new direction for the character. I'm curious to see to what extent it continues. There already was a hint at backtracking with her being like, but I do still have to remember to keep myself somewhat guarded and closed off, or, uh, I don't know, Brother Blood could take me over again? No, I took care of him. Trigon could rise to power. No, Trigon's gone. But still, I better keep myself closed off and guarded with my emotion. Mm -hmm. So I, in hope of 
putting off that backtracking, I want to reinforce the good work that she's done and the progress that she made. So I went with Raven. That's fair. What was your favorite panel in this issue? Oof, boy. Despite what I just said about being unhappy with the amount of train destruction, <laughs> there is a... I think I'm going to say this one's my runner-up, but it's on page 14, and I called it uh, silent but deadly. <laughs> but <it's, laughs> They said silent and deadly, but... I considered that as a band name, too, although it really wouldn't make any sense. <laughs> yeah, but uh, it's amazing. It's Borgie's using his sonic white sound blaster to blow up a train and it looks really fucking cool yeah i love the description of his noise cannon as silent and deadly Mm -hmm. i liked that a lot too i think my backup is probably we had talked about it before but the happy-go-lucky beast boy erasure final page of them walking arm in arm away from the nuclear power plant Mm. yeah that was a good one for sure i think My favorite is on page 19, and that's the big sploosh panel. (laughs) The dam has exploded. There's rocks and water flying directly at you as the the reader. There's a... (laughs) That sploosh sound effect is green with a yellow, you know, kind of outline for some reason. Mm -hmm. And Kirby Crackle coming out from it for some reason, too, because maybe the Zandian terrorists used a space bomb? Mm-hmm. And uh, BR's hair turned green. And like, there's just so much going on. There's arms and legs akimbo. It's great. It is a really nice panel that I think does kind of effectively convey the chaos of the moment. I could not really figure out much of the terrorist plans, including the destruction of the dam. It looks like they had already blown it up some when the Titans showed up, but then they decide to blow it up more, I guess. Yeah, they're so bad at what they do. They really are. Which, I mean, good, I guess. My favorite panels, gosh, it's kind of a toss-up for me. One is on page two. They they are back-to-back. On page two, Cyborg looking out the window and seeing his reflection in it. Mm. It's just a really nicely drawn panel. It's a small moment. And the panel that follows that is another kind of small moment, but it is Raven and Cyborg having a discussion And it's the backdrop of it that I just find really enchanting. It's a weird art deco slash mirror you might win in a dart game at a fair. Like two interlocking squares of various colors. And then in the middle of it are Raven and Cyborg just having a little chat. It's a nice way to break up kind of a long scene of dialogue. It's just very visually interesting and just an innovative touch that I appreciated. It shows a real interesting graphic design element. Interesting choice. Corey, who did you have as your president of the drama club in this issue? Which character acted or rather overacted in the most dramatic fashion? Well, I can't say she didn't have reason to be experiencing this level of emotion, but at the end of the day, I had to give it to Biara. We are in accord, Corey. She went through the trouble to get vanity plates up. <laughs> that was the thing that put it over the edge for me, too. There is the scene where she is driving and there's the close up on her face and she is just like dripping with sweat and conflicted emotion and terror. But when you see her car, the fact that she decided to do her terrorism 
in a car with vanity plates that had her name on them. That was what put it over the top. That's too much. <laughs> it really it's is. It's just too much. I had backups of Cyborg and Beast Boy, but if you are doing nefarious activities in a car with vanity plates with your rather unusual name written on it, yeah, I'm sorry, but you're the president of that drama club. Mm-hmm. That and, like, the, the degree to which her entire body is shaking, like, Dr. Strangeglove level of campiness when mm-hmm. she's trying to decide whether or not to detonate the bomb. I believe it was his love that was strange, not his glove. <laughs> I, when I was a kid, because he um, would, you know, try and... It was a gloved hand, right, that would he would have to stop himself <laughs> from strangling himself with it. <laughs> I can't not call him Dr. Strangeglove because of that. Fair enough. Sorry, I should have explained that. That's quite all right. You'll watch watch it again. You'll understand. <laughs> also, I don't think he was trying to strangle himself. I think he was trying to give a Nazi salute. And he was trying to stop himself from doing that. Oh, my God. I haven't seen that movie since I was a child. <laughs> That's fair. My favorite thing about that movie is how uh, the big scene where there's the billboard in the background where all of the people are fighting in front of the sign that says, peace is our profession. Mm, That's fuzzy. But I know that that was written under the sign welcoming you to Pease Air Force Base. And I think it was some of your dad's friends spray painted under that at one point. War is just our hobby. Oof. Zing. Yeah. I'm not going to include that in case they, uh, I don't know what the Statue of Liberty, Lim- Statue of Libertation. <laughs> I think it's libertated enough. <laughs> yeah, man. At, at least five years. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Well, Corey, I have but one final question I must put to you. Wapoot. So we no longer have reprints of these coming out, so we're just proceeding forward from the month of the last Wapoot until we figure out a better plan. So in the arbitrarily determined month of Our Lord September, in the year of Our Lord 1988, what was Aqualad probably up to, Corey? Wapoot. Mm. So Eagle Brains listeners will remember in the last Wapoot, that American swimmer Matt Biondi had benefited from Aqualad, teaching him some uh, Atlantean swimming tricks and allowed him to, to break some records. And this month, as the Olympics in Seoul, Korea continued, Aqualad, of course, had attended all of the aquatic events and honestly was feeling a little tired of it and wanted to see what else was going on. He had bumped into an old friend of the Titans who back when they met in 1968 in issue 18, went by Starfire, but uh, who now goes by Red Star, but uh, Leonid Kovar was in his civilian duds, and uh, they were enjoying some of the overpriced concession beer, maybe more than they needed to, and Leonid convinced Aqualad to engage in a friendly superpower versus superpower wager with who would be victorious in the basketball, men's basketball event. And Aqualad went all in. He had won a lot of money betting on the aquatic events, which, you know, a little bit of an unfair advantage, right? Because he knows how all that stuff works. And so he put the whole pot on Team USA for the gold. 
And on September 30th, the uh, Soviet Union beat Yugoslavia, who had beaten out the U.S. Uh, 76 to 63 for the win, the gold medal at the Olympics, with the U.S. finishing third. And Aqualad had to give Red Star all of his questionable winnings from the aquatic betting. And uh, did that lead to Aqualad pressuring the Olympic Society to allow NBA players to compete in the Olympics? This was indeed the last time that the non-NBA team competed. And, you know, basketball being an American thing. Yes, Alcalad indeed did make some opinions known and uh, exercise what influence he could to let the Dream Team happen. Well, that's one thing that Aqualad was up to in the somewhat arbitrarily determined month of September 1988. But it wasn't the only thing that he was doing. The other thing he was up to was trying to be a good friend. Mm. See, he had found out about Dick having spent the better part of a year or a decade or something being brainwashed by Brother Blood's cult, and he figured Dick was probably feeling a little bit out of sorts. So he reached out to uh, Dick Grayson and was like, hey, do you want to talk and hang out? And Dick was like, ah, gosh, you know, I would love to, but I'm kind of busy. See. There's this thing that me and Speedy do every once in a while. You know what? Why don't you just come along with us? And so Aqualad went on a trip with Speedy and Nightwing to Australia. <laughs> Turns out there was a bit of a ritual going on that the two had been taking part in. Dick took Aqualad aside and was like, Hey, I know you probably never noticed this, but... I sometimes get jealous of you guys that have superpowers. Speedy does too. And Aqualad, to his credit, was like, Oh, really? Hmm, yeah, never noticed that. Anyway, what Dick and Roy had decided to do to make up for that is every time they got out their farmer's almanac and saw that there was an eclipse coming, they would go to wherever the eclipse was most visible and try to convince the people there that they were powerful wizards who had just blotted out the sun. Hmm. So they were just rolling around Australia saying, I'm a very powerful wizard. Don't make me blot out the sun. And then the eclipse happened and everybody acted very, very surprised and in terror of Dick and Roy. And Aqualad was like, um, these Australians know what an eclipse is. What's going on here? Roy and Dick were just like, <laughs> stupid idiots. But Aqualad was just like, hey guys, uh, he took one of the civilians aside that was acting in total awe of these apparent wizards and was like, what's going on? And the guy's like, oh yeah, this has happened before. See, every time there's an eclipse, these guys show up and before they do, this guy who looks a lot like Batman and is dressed in a Batman suit, but is wearing an enormous fake mustache, just shows up and pays us all to go along with them. <laughs> Aqualad was like, okay, I get it. Guys, great job. You did a wonderful job being powerful wizards. But you know what? Superpowers aren't the only way to feel cool and tough and powerful. Let me show you something. So they all went to a movie theater and watched Run DMC's action movie, Tougher Than Leather. <laughs> and when they got out, Aqualad was like, see, Run DMC doesn't have any superpowers, and they still seem to do pretty well for themselves. Speedy was like, 
Well, yeah, but that's Run DMC. We can't feel that cool. And Aqualad was like, well, no, of course you can't. But tell you what, let's try doing this. Whenever I feel like I'm not cool and tough and awesome and powerful, I get together with a couple of friends and I say, Unconceivable, unbelievable, grammar like a hammer, information receivable, sent by the Lord, here and abroad, with words well adored, and they can't be ignored. And, And Dick and Roy repeated that with him in unison, and then were like, oh man, that's better than any superpower. I don't need to pretend to be a wizard anymore. Wow. And then they all watch Tougher Than Leather again, because the scene when the record label decides that they want to sign Run DMC badly enough that they're willing to sign the Beastie Boys as well is just fucking awesome. Oh, man. I haven't seen that forever. It's mostly not a very good movie, but it's got a couple of really fun scenes in it. Mm. And that's what Aqualad was probably up to. Thanks for joining us, Corey. I had a good time talking about this comic book with you. And we'll be back next week to talk about another comic book. In the meantime, if you would like to get into touch with us, you can do so at ttwasteland at gmail.com. Or you can reach us via our post office box at Tighten Up the Defense, P.O. Box 20311, Portland, Oregon 97294. We've gotten some really nice messages over the holiday season, and I just really appreciate that. I think I've gotten back to everyone, but if I haven't gotten back to you yet, I will. And uh, just know how much I uh, really enjoyed hearing from you and have appreciated getting some kind words from you guys. Thanks. Hey, next time we talk to you, it won't be 2020 anymore. Oof. Yeah. So better luck next year. Hmm. Yeah. Unless, you know, unless this year went great for you, in which case... Um, congratulations, Jeff Bezos. I didn't know you listened. (laughs) Hey, how about kicking me down a billion dollars? Tell you what, make it a million. Hey, if you want to send me that million dollars, Jeff Bezos or anybody else who has a million dollars, or you know what? A lesser amount is fine too. Check us out on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash TT Wasteland for all your giving us a million dollars needs. Or like I said, any amount is always appreciated. If you do make a donation, you get access to a whole bunch of bonus material. There's a bunch of video reviews of classic comics I've done. Uh, My wife Lisa and I host the monthly podcast that is for our donors only called What the Duck, a podcast most foul, but with a W because he's a duck. That's the full name of the show. And there's a bunch of extra stuff up on there, but mostly it's just a really nice way for you to let us know that you appreciate the show that we put out and the work that we put into it and would like us to be able to keep doing it. So I really appreciate that. Thank you. We're also up on uh, social medias and whatnot in various places. You can find us there if you look at various evil corporations like uh, Facebook or Instagram, which is owned by Facebook, or Twitter, which is also kind of a hellscape in a different way. If you don't want to look on those places, you don't have to. Uh, I certainly understand. But, you know, if you do, well, be there. And if you can't find us there or don't want to, there's another place you can look. And that's deep inside your heart. We'll be in there trying our damnedest to get drunk off of eggnog. Corey, what are you doing in there? Wee-oo. <laughs> I don't know. Eggnog. 
Okay, fair enough. If you would like to uh, support the show in a non-monetary manner, you can do that by leaving us a review in a place where a review can be left. There's all kinds of places where reviews can be left, probably. You can uh, hire a plane to do some skywriting. That'd be fun. You can use a laser to carve our logo onto the face of the moon. Or if you don't have access to that equipment, you could just leave us a review on uh, the podcatcher of choice. However you're listening to this right now, just hack into their mainframe and type in, tighten up the defense. It's cool. I love it so much. I wish I could marry it, but I can't. Sorry. (laughs) You don't need to be sorry, but I appreciate the sentiment. Thanks. So thanks for listening to us say things. And, uh, welcome to a new year. I hope this year is less unprecedented than the previous one. Or maybe still unprecedented, but in a better way? I don't know. Happy New Year! Happy New Year! Wee-woo! <laughs> Bye! Bye! We uh, little and drink a sip of this coffee nog. Did you did you slap yourself? I did. <laughs> it came through in the mic, so it was oh. funny. Um, wee wee wee. <laughs> Corey, this is a shit-eating grin that I'm wearing of the deepest. And most sincere contrition. Duck Bruce Banner, melted by Gamma Ray's turn.